What is going on, everybody? Oh, let's see how many times I re-record this intro. <laughs> I am TC Crosser. I am a composer, a producer. Um, but you already know that if you're listening to this. And this is the podcast Making Sparkles. Not a podcast about making the musical sparkle on Oh my goodness gracious, cowboys and cowgirls. So, I've re-recorded this part like seven times, but no one's really counting since it's just me. Um, So in this episode, I've got four main bullet points I kind of want to talk about. I'm going to talk about working with my music supervisor to schedule my first recording session for the Book of Arius. Um... Uh, God, I sound like Trump. Um, so we had some budget issues, some scheduling issues, and also some other things I think are useful for everyone to know about when trying to book a session, depending on their own proficiency and their own tool sets. That'll make more sense when we get into that section, because it's a loaded gun. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit after that about segment two of the Book of Arius and kind of where I'm at with that. Um, as far as taking that first pass, what I'm doing with the second pass, kind of some of the tricks of the trade and how I'm fine-tuning and figuring out what the second pass will sound like. Um, I want to talk about SoundCloud a little bit because it's weighing heavily on me. Um, SoundCloud, if you don't know, is actually going through a vote today to determine if they're going to shut their doors or not. So maybe as of this recording, when you hear it, they've already shut down. I don't know. We'll find out more. And then finally, I want to talk about I'm learning 3D animation. Um, Now I'm not going to talk about the specifics of learning 3D animation, but I'm going to talk more about having a side bitch for when times get rough. Rough. (laughs) So, So those are our bullet points. And that is probably as good as this pass is going to be on it. So let's keep pushing forward. And where we left off, now that we're... Okay, this is where we're talking about Kaylee. (laughs) So where we left off last time, um, music supervisor kind of gave her the marching orders. I was like, here's the score. I want a string quartet. I want a recording session, and it's because it's just one song, I'm going to overinflate it to a budget of $1,500, go run with it. And this is why I always try to plan things months in advance, because we had a meeting last week, and it was quickly discovered that we weren't on the same page as far as what the expectations of what was supposed to happen. Um... I guess through that, there was confusion. She thought $1,500 was just for the musicians, for the string quartet, which for one song, 
um, for a seven minute song is a bit pricey. And I was like, okay. Um, she wasn't aware that she also had to book the recording studio or the audio engineer, which is fine. But I'm bringing this up not to show anyone's limitations or that anyone did anything wrong. It's that when you're starting a project, especially a project that leaves kind of the, I like to think of this as like leaving the nest, right? We've left the nest. Everything we've been doing has been out of my little home studio using MIDI and samplers and using ways to get, as I'm just going to say, like from previous episodes, um, getting your notation software to talk to your DAW session, um, how to get everything to communicate, how to do passes, how to map things out. So we finally got to the point with this first song in this project called The Book of Arius where we got it as near perfect as we could get it to sound. Um, Now we have the next task of going, okay, how do we realize that? Um, I am a little bit more OCD than your average bear, so months in advance I'm like okay these are the things that I would need and let's get them done and then that way if there's an issue like oh I didn't realize $1,500 was for everything or oh I didn't know I needed to also book the studio we can kind of reevaluate that and kind of take it as it is so I was willing to concede I'm willing to increase the budget so now we're dealing with a budget of $2,000 um So the way budgets usually work with music supervisors and music contractors is you give them a lump sum of money and whatever's left over, they get to pocket. That's how they make their money. It's the way it's worked for years. It's how composers actually make money off of film scores for the most part. I think very, I guess you still get residuals and stuff and soundtrack licensing rights, but for the most part, your real meat and potatoes is the film studio gives you a chunk of money. That chunk is your budget. Anything that's not spent using that money on musicians, recording studios, things like that goes back to you. This is why all the major composers have their own studios. And even if they don't have like their own full-on recording studio, they have like their own mixing studios. It's because and the more they do in-house, the more they get to keep for themselves. This is also why you see them have, like, Hans Zimmer has a ton of interns, because that way he gets more of the money from the budget, and then the interns in, in turn get, like, the wisdom and knowledge of being Hans Zimmer, I guess. <laughs> so there was just some growing pains, and we are just working through that. Um, because I come from a heavy punk rock background um, and the studios I've worked in have always been a little bit more grungy lo-fi, which is actually my preference. Um, This actually became a benefit when communicating to Kaylee because since she was unaware that this was part of a facet of her responsibilities, I was able to kind of go, you don't need to overthink it. I don't want you going to a place that only specializes in instrumental scores. I feel like those places are very expensive and I also feel like it's kind of limiting. I was like, what you really need to do is find like a cool, cheap audio engineer that you enjoy working with and then just talk to them. Audio engineers are usually your best route when you're finding a studio um, because the audio engineers will either already have their own mainstay recording studio they work out of or they have a collection of them that they kind of rotate through. 
either way, those are the guys you need anyway because any studio you go to to rent from, they're always going to tell you they charge extra if you don't pay for their audio engineer. But then their audio engineer also charges. It's kind of like a give and take situation. And, and for the studio, it's more like you're coming in using our equipment. We need someone to babysit you because we don't want you just banging on our crap and breaking it. Um, so typically, I would say 90% of the time, you're using their certified audio engineer who already knows the board, knows the system, everything's good to go. So by having Kaylee just go, go to the audio engineers she knows, she's then able to kind of skip the middleman, go directly to the source. Um, so it sounds like she's found one that um, might work out who I don't know a lot about, but I'm kind of trusting her because the whole point of recording the first segment before anything else is to kind of iron out the kinks. Um, it allows me to test out this audio engineer that Kaylee has found who is willing to go under budget, which I love. Um, and I'll explain that part in just a little bit because um, that kind of goes into Kaylee's flub. <laughs> um, so, but also uses Logic Pro X, which means I can do all of my mixing without having to bounce the stems. Um, basically what that means is if they were to use a Pro Tools environment because I lo use Logic Pro X, every single track they record, they would have to record bounce to a raw individual audio file and then I would have to painstakingly take every single individual audio file and piece them back together in Logic. There are ways to get around that but it requires you owning both Pro Tools and Logic and I do not own Pro Tools anymore. I, it's expensive and I had a free version. <laughs> And I'm sure I could probably get like a licensed free version and then just redo it. But anyway, because he has logic, that's kind of a benefit. Um, he's also got unorthodox recording places that he likes, which I am a huge fan of. Um, if you've listened to like the Velvet Teens Elysium album, you'll realize, or you may know, or you'll find out, you know, not only does it sound beautiful, but also they recorded that in a warehouse in Berkeley. So... There, there's tricks of the trades like that. So I feel like I'm taking advantage of this situation to kind of be like, let's think out of the box. Let's, if we're gonna shell out, I'm going to shell out all this money. I would like to, you know, experiment. Let's not do it in some stodgy old recording studio. What I want is a unique space, a good audio engineer that's not gonna throw a bunch of fucking filters and crap on there. He's just gonna try to get it bounced down to its purest form. Um, and also mics, right? Mics are the big thing. So I'm. Th that's the part we haven't gotten to because they're trying to show up dates. But, but in my opinion, I feel like if you're recording a string quartet, you're gonna want at least you want two ribbon mics. Um, ribbon mics basically, <laughs> they they record in what's called a figure eight pattern. So so when you have two ribbon mics set up and you have them. Um, at perpendicular angles from each other, at least the recording inf inference, um, you actually get a really cool stereo spread. I'm realizing this is getting heavy technical and I don't know how to really explain a ribbon mic, but if you Google it, 
ribbon mic, it, they've been around since the 50s. It's like the very first type of mic they've had. Really cool. Um, I'm also thinking some omnidirectional mics, uh, which kind of help pick up all the ambient. So like if I'm playing a violin, I don't want to just record directly from the violin. It's the bounces, right? The bounces from the different corners of the room, the reverberation, um, also picking up the dynamics of the ambiance between the instruments, like a cello and a violin, like all of that in omnidirectional. And then actually having... It's not the right word for it, but I call them shotgun mics. Um, basically, just good um, violins. I technically, I typically go with like an SM58 Beta, which you always hear me talk. I love these mics. I'm recording on this mic. Um, just a really strong, solid, dynamic mic for the violins, um, and then some just decent bass and condenser mics, like a Rhodes condenser for like the cello viola. Obviously, I'm coming into this with a lot more information than your typical composer would. So <laughs> this audio engineer either is going to love me or hate me. Um, so, so with that, the other component to this is retooling the budget. So originally, I told Kaylee, 1500 spend as you like, whatever's left over, you keep. Because she didn't factor in the cost of the audio engineering recording studio, I'm kind of removing that from her back end. So I'm increasing the budget to two grand, but that 500, anything that's left over from that 500, I'm keeping. And so what I'm trying to do is just split it. So I'm going, all right, I will concede for now, 1500 for the musicians, Anything you didn't spend on the musicians in that 1500 you keep, but the 500 goes straight to the audio engineer in the studio. Anything they did not spend after negotiations, I keep. That means if the audio engineer charges us $200 for a half day rate, which is what we're going for, that means I'm only giving them 200. I keep 300. And I'm really hoping he's not listening to this episode because <laughs> I don't want him jacking this up to 500. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess the takeaway from, from that whole debacle and everything I was kind of explaining is that you as a composer can't do it on your own. And especially if you're bringing in other instruments, even if it's a singer or anything else, um, I always advise to find a middle person. Um, you've heard me sing the song of Kaylee, the music supervisor, over and over, and I can't impress upon you enough the amount of latitude it gives you, the, the free space. It's just, it's like breathing room. Having someone else negotiate your calendar schedule, your, your rates, hiring musicians, frees up the creative process, allows you to be you, while it also at the same time, from a more professional standpoint, it separates you from the business side. Um, I've had experiences where I've, I, most experiences where I've done everything on my own and it's caused rifts, especially with the hired talent, where if, you, if they're worried about you paying them on top of them worrying about are you worrying about them getting the best performance possible? It gets really murky. Um, musicians have a tendency to strong arm you. All of a sudden their rates will go up at the 11th hour. Um, I've seen scenarios where like, they'll like say, oh, well this is actually overtime, so I'm charging you double. Um, it, musicians, it's like any other business. 
if they have an opportunity to make more money off of you, they're going to. And, and it's because musicians are, you know, it's a difficult life. You're gigging for a living. I understand it. I get it. I'm not knocking it. But I'm saying when you have a music supervisor or a business manager in place to handle all that, they get to play bad cop and you get to just keep being the composer. So I would also from this experience learn that you want to book things really far in advance. Not just because you can catch some of the miscommunications like, I don't know, getting a studio to record this crap, but also because when you're dealing with scheduling, you're not only dealing with musicians and their schedules, you're dealing with the studio and their schedule, and you're dealing with the audio engineer and their schedule, and, you know, let's face it, your own schedule. What are you doing? You may have a day job. You may have something else going on. You may have other things on the books. makes it really difficult to do anything if... <laughs> Everyone's schedules are misaligned and no one's trying to keep it up. So, so the sooner you can kind of lock them in, the better. Um, one last side note to this that I will add from my experiences is that don't inundate the musicians that are getting hired. Don't try to give them the music way far in advance. Don't try to communicate with them. Even with the audio engineer, if you're in the early phases and you're mapping everything out, that's great. Don't get into the technical specifics yet. Um, I know it sounds kind of weird why you wouldn't, but the problem you have is if you have a session that's booked a month or two months in advance, if you start giving them music now and start giving them notes now, um, you have a very strong likelihood of burnout. So you get people excited, but when you get someone excited about something, whether they're getting paid or not, there's a shelf life to that excitement. So if you start the excitement two months down the road, and then all of a sudden two months comes, they're a little burnt out. They've already heard the whole spiel, they've heard everything. It's just their playing's gonna be a little different. It always, I feel like it just muddies the waters. So typically what I like to do now, from my experiences, I book them, I lock them in, I have the supervisor get all their contact information, everything shored up, all of the little like pertinent details, and then about a week before recording is when I actually send them the score, send them all the information, give them the setup, and then even then, I only respond to questions. I don't keep hounding them. And then the day of recording, that way when we tackle it, I've given them a week's advance notice, but now we can kind of fine tune this whole process. Um, Again, I, I can't, this is, it's the last little bit of this thing that I'm talking about, but it is the most important. Don't, you are excited about what you've created. They are not. They're in it for the money. They need to get paid. If you try to impart your excitement onto them too early, it just, very, very bad things happen. Um, this is also why I'm not working with singers right now. <laughs> because <laughs> singers are the same way it's like a singer their responsibility is themselves and their image and their branding if you start bothering them two months before you do anything or you start bothering talent before you're fully ready to get anything done you're just wasting a lot of time and more importantly you're wasting their time they don't need to hear how excited you are about this. Save it for when they're on the clock and they're getting paid to be excited about it because then you don't really care. They know that they have to be excited. They're getting paid. And you know what? I'm okay with that because ignorance is bliss. And one more thing about 
<laughs> about recording session fees <clears throat> and budgets. Because the one thing I was thinking about is taking my little cigarette break, drinking my Monster Energy drink, because, you know, that's what I do. That's how I roll. Um, is $2,000 too much to record one song? And there is no short answer to that. It's rather complicated. I think when you're getting your own budgets together, the first thing that always needs to come into play is how much money are you willing to spend to begin with? How, how much do you have? So so for me, two grand for one song is steep, but at the same time, it's steep because almost all that cost is going into the musicians. So I think for a lot of other bands and artists that I know, they usually have friends or they have systems worked out where a lot of people come in and they're either doing half rate or they're doing it for free or, you know, the important point is, is that because of the nature of this and that this is, I wouldn't call this my swan song, but because I want to test the wheels out and I want to get everything done right, I'm willing to spend more money for it. And I have the budget that I've been saving up forever for it. So, so the hope is that although it's two grand for one song, it's because I'm testing all of these different things out. When I get into a real session with the rest of the act one, which is going to be uh, three more segments, recording three segments, I'm hoping will cost about the same amount because I'll have everything in place. So the amount of time spent won't be, I won't be wasting as much time. I feel like Part of that $1,500 towards the musicians is because there's going to be a lot of them just waiting around while we're figuring out mic placement, we're figuring out my rapport with the audio engineer, I'm also figuring out the shorthand and communicating with the musicians as a whole. If everything falls into place and I like what I'm doing and I like what I'm doing with them and I bring them back in, obviously these rates get renegotiated <laughs> because... 2000 per song adds up, especially if it's a 13-segment piece. You, you're talking about $26,000, which I am not going to be spending. So, so I just want to throw that out there. Just my little FYI tidbits, but still, ignorance is bliss. So <laughs> I've never had so much structure on my podcast episodes before. So... The next thing I was going to talk about is, so I'm working on segment two, uh, and just because we haven't had any music played lately, I'm just going to give you the first pass that I had originally sent um, to Kaylee, who dug it, obviously super sparse, it's just kind of blocking out things, but it goes to something a little like this.
so that was kind of a... <laughs> and we, we've covered this in previous episodes of Making Sparkles, a podcast not about making the musical Sparkle Pony Bear. Um, wonder how many times I'll keep saying that. Uh, so you hear a lot of building blocks. You hear some chunks. You hear the formation of... You kind of get the overall gist of what the song is going to be about. And I kind of leave it at that. Um, <clears throat> typically, what I'll do is I'll just kind of th- regurgitate out my different ideas, kind of format it, get it in the first pass, throw it out there. Kaylee will have feedback and notes for me and questions and things. And then usually what I do is I've already kind of been chicken scratching ideas in my my score paper. So, so I'm a little old school, so I like to write everything out in notation, um, but not like literally every single note that's being played just the the broad stroke ideas so so sometimes i'll have score thoughts and ideas already written down before i do the first pass sometimes i start with a blank slate in my logic session and i build it out and maybe i won't even have any notes but once the first pass is done, I'm going through my chicken scratch notes and I start just kind of blocking out the basic themes. And and generally, I don't like to write out specific notes. It's more kind of like chicken scratch ideas, right? So, so like on my notes, which you cannot see, ha ha ha, um, I'll kind of like start out with like a melody line, so I'll write the melody line out, and then underneath it, I'll kind of put in breakpoints, so like uh, just dashes, dashes where like the strings come in, and I'll put them in as a single dash, and then the strings are going to build out into four-part harmony, so then I'll kind of like shoot arrows out, and I'll kind of, it's more about putting in the rhythm markers, so, so as long as I have some strong rhythm markers, um, it reminds me what I need to do later on. And I'll kind of really labor over that, those notes, and just work on those notes before even going back into my logic session. And I think for me, it's just, I like to kind of separate everything out a little bit. If I spend too much time in logic, just t- constantly tweaking and editing, I have a habit of forgetting what I was originally supposed to be doing with it. And I also have a habit of kind of OCD over over focusing on just one particular section. And when you focus too much on that one section and you keep tweaking and tweaking, and then you step back and you kind of listen to the overall thing, it just kind of stands out like a sore thumb. Um, I know like a lot of my friends that are like video editors, they run into like a similar situation where they spend so much time editing this one like two minute segment and really, really going into the weeds with it that when they step back and look at it as a whole, it just, it stands out. It doesn't, it, there, there's no cohesive through line to it. <clears throat> so my way of kind of keeping away from that is by just like keeping it all in the paper where it's all there and blocks and kind of ideas. Um, and that, that's where I'm at right now. Um, because of, you can hear me like, my crinkly paper, um, because I have a lot of downtime, because I think we're looking at a, a recording session of like late September, um, the dates are starting to line up, and that's the other hurdle that Kaylee's dealing with now, just scheduling everyone on one coherent date, but 
because I have that downtime, I'm kind of taking my time with the note part of it. So I also like to write in different colors. So I'm generally, I'm a very visual person when it comes to writing, which is a little weird, but, or maybe not so weird, who knows. Um, so I'll do like a pass of notes in black ink. I'll kind of like take a break or even like take an entire day off and then I'll come back to it. Then I'll come back to it with a red pen. So that way I kind of have an idea of what the original idea was versus what the the revision notes and ideas are. And then I even have like green and blue and pink, pen, like very different colored pens. So then that way I kind of see visually, I can kind of map out my, the evolution of my own thought process because a lot of times when I'm writing these notes out, I'll start to go on these tangents, and then I'll kind of lose sight of what the point was. So so having it color-coded just allows me to do that. Um, and that's where I'm at right now with it. So the idea is once I have the notes more in a place where, and it's more of like a feeling, like there, there's like an emotional feeling for me when I'm noting and noting and drilling down, where I get to this point where I feel like I'm just, I'm ready. Like, it, I, I don't know how to describe it other than I don't feel lazy. I don't feel like I just want to play video games. And I kind of, I'm like, I'm, re- I'm ginning up for the fight. And so then that's the point where I take the notes. And then I'll go back into my logic session and I'll start just fine-tuning, building it out. I'll start working on the sections, kind of constantly going back and forth between the actual section itself and then listening to it as a whole, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until... Feel like there's enough cohesion, and that that's what's going to get you that second pass. Um, it's still not refined, it's still not perfected, but you generally, after a second pass, for me, it's like I know how long the song is. Um, it isn't that song like this super important, but it does give you a good idea. Like if you're working on a song and it's only like a minute and a half. <laughs> You might be like, that's a little short. And if you're working on a song and it's like 15 minutes, that might be a little long. So so usually you kind of want to just bird eye, bird's eye the length. And usually, with the exception of seven, segment one, the opening was much longer, but that was because there was a lot more to say. So I had to give everything a little bit more breathing room. But segment two is more focused on just one individual character, one individual scenario that kind of branches out. So, so I'm kind of looking at um, four-minute marker, give or take 30 seconds, is kind of what I'm shooting for. And what that allows me to do is I'm very block-focused. So again, punk rock producer. So when I'm writing, I'm kind of looking at it like first chorus, first chorus, bridge, chorus, end. I kind of keep it in that mode just to create the blocks. Um, it's kind of like it's like creating a sculpture for me. So I'm sculpturing it out. I'm just blocking it out. And then once I kind of get the song length to the right length I want it, I've got my blocks, my chunks. Then I go in and I start fine-tuning. I start tweaking. I start editing. I start adding and subtracting and fine-tuning. Well, fine-tuning part is usually what's going to occur when I get to pass three, which usually gets me pretty close to score ready and in in the can for recording. So yeah, that, that's where I'm at right now. So So hopefully... At some point on my next episode, maybe, I'll have a second pass. And then you can kind of see 
the the progression or the evol- evolution of, of the work on that. And I think that'll be exciting. And that's where we're at with that. And now I'm just vamping because I don't know what I want to say. Other than this will not cost $2,000 to make this one fucking song when I'm done with it. <laughs> and speaking of fucking <laughs> SoundCloud, uh, I just want to throw this out there. So I'm always singing the praises of SoundCloud because that's how I've always been posting stuff, at least since SoundCloud's inception. Inception. I was an early adopter. I, I, I loved its original intent of basically a way for artists and musicians to release music that isn't on a label, isn't necessarily going to be made through Spotify or is a full album that you would release on iTunes or even sell on something like Bandcamp. And I always enjoyed that part. I also enjoyed groups, which allowed you to kind of curate and share and find like-minded audience members to hear your work. Um, But over the years, SoundCloud has become a bit of a difficult darling. Um, They removed the groups, so there was no way for me, who's an instrumental and punk rock composer, to kind of categorize my music and easily have people that belong to those specific groups hear it and like it and comment. Um, And because of this, I've noticed my listenership on SoundCloud, which used to go up to like hundreds of people, has been reduced to like five to ten people. And I'm not thinking it's necessarily because my quality of work has gone down, at least I hope not, but more because SoundCloud has tried to find a way of monetizing. And in trying to monetize, they have these weird Go accounts where like you can hear songs that you would hear on Spotify, on SoundCloud. They, they added all of this bullshit to make the record labels happy that ended up just throwing all the indie artists that originally supported and started SoundCloud in the first place under the bus. Um, I pay 20 bucks a month for my SoundCloud Pro account, and that gives me unlimited file size. Um, It allows me to actually produce and send out this podcast that you're listening to is created by SoundCloud's server system. All of these things that are great. But now, because SoundCloud is like every other fucking startup, they, they've been mismanaged, they've gone belly up, they've had to get emergency funding, and now I'm finding out today they're voting on whether or not to close it down permanently. So I don't even know if anyone's going to be listening to this podcast by the time it airs, <laughs> which is sad. <laughs> very, very sad. Um, so I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Uh, I, I read articles about this a couple months ago when everyone was when news was starting to break. The SoundCloud was in distress. So far, I haven't found anything that is of a similar nature. Um, I did recently kind of start up my Bandcamp site again, but Bandcamp is really a platform for people to buy music directly from you. Um, It's not like SoundCloud where you can just post whatever you want. People can embed it and share it and hear it. It's a little bit different. So I haven't fully figured out in the event that SoundCloud goes away what I'm supposed to do. And I haven't really found a competitor to SoundCloud that offers everything that I'm looking for. 
So I'm just kind of throwing that out as kind of a tangent, but something that's actually really stressing me out. It's like, fucking SoundCloud, get your shit together. It's kind of like, oh God, and I'm showing my age. It's kind of like MySpace. When MySpace first started years ago, like millennia ago, it was about connecting musicians with audience members. They were Back in the day, MySpace was the first one to have like a really true XML MP3 player that we all loved that was awesome. And so by creating your MySpace profile, it was all about musicians. So you could literally, an, person, an audience person or fan member or whoever could go to your MySpace profile, hear all the songs that you were posting, and then communicate with you and get notifications about shows that you were doing and stuff like that. And then MySpace got bought out, and then they tried to monetize. And then if you remember... <laughs> Everyone was personalizing their pages with so many different CSS widgets that it would constantly crash. And then on top of that, they because they were tying again with major record labels, um, they squashed out the indie artists. So it was a sea of just bullshit and a bunch of gifs. And I feel like SoundCloud never learned from that mistake. And now we're, we're in this big old stinky hornet's nest. So if you have an alternative to SoundCloud and you're listening to this, by all means, let me know. And again, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, T-C-C-R-O-S-S-E-R, that's T-C-Crosser. Let me know, because I'm trying to find an alternative. I'm kind of sick of the back and forth, but I don't really know an alternative yet. And I'm working on it, so... In the event there's an alternative and I have to move the podcast as well over to a different streaming or file server system, I may even revamp the entire podcast. Who knows? You never know, baby. You never know. But yeah, so that that's my little rant on SoundCloud, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, so if it crashes today, I guess no one's going to be listening to this episode anyway. So, who the fuck really cares? <laughs> such, I, I'm such an eloquent speaker. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's getting a little hot again in New York City. Uh, oh, it's Friday. Thank God, it's fucking Friday. August 11th. And we're in this weird New York City time period where fall is around the corner somewhere. The, the the sun is setting earlier in the day, but then at the same time, it's still like 80 degrees out. And the humidity is at like 275%. So, so bear with me and my rambling magic, because now I want to kind of talk about having a side bitch. <laughs> it's like, it's just like prison. No. Um, if I spend all of my time only working on music stuff, I get cranky. Um, and actually, the music suffers too. I get very disoriented. I feel like when if you're gonna spend all day in logic and that's it, <clears throat> it doesn't really feed the soul. Little you know, it doesn't really feed the soul. It really just kind of drains you out. And so I'm always exploring and doing little hobbies and side projects. And as you've kind of been on this magical journey of the Book of Arius with me. Um, I'd also kind of explain that part of the component to these pieces is to have a visual element. But 
I feel like in my experience, trying to get directors and visual artists on board, especially when I myself usually have pretty specific ideas and visions in my own head has always been a huge limiting factor. Um, and it's been very difficult. I've had a couple of collaborations that worked out really well. And then I've had a couple that have just been complete messes. And, and in all sense, it's always, it became more work and time to try to coordinate and find visual artists and talent than if I just tried to do it myself. So on that note, um, and as I've kind of described in a previous previous episodes of the Book of Arius, before I even do a pass of a segment, I'm actually writing out narration. So, so I'm writing out story ideas. Um, and so again, for anyone that's forgotten, in the Book of Arius, the whole point is we have three people from three entirely separate points in time that are all sharing the same dream or nightmare, if you put it that way. Um, and within this same shared dream, they're all communicating with each other. And basically, all three of them have these repressed, buried memories from their childhood that they're trying to uncover and trying to learn more about themselves through. Um, so with each segment, I'm actually kind of writing out a loose narrative structure of what is going on in this, who is the focal point, who's the main character, and what are they trying to say. Because of that, I felt like it would be cool to have a visual element to it, but I'm not a visual artist. I've done a lot of animation. I've done a lot of little quirky videos. You can see them on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash tccrosser. <laughs> um, but I never really kind of got too deep in the reads. So as a way of trying to get myself out of music every once in a while, um, I've actually started every morning... I've been going through a tutorial series on YouTube for free that teaches me how to do 3D animation using a free program called Blender. Um, I just want to kind of throw it out there um, just because I, I, as I've been progressing, it isn't that, well, okay, so so far I can make a donut and a coffee cup. And, and tomorrow, or probably next week, when I start my exercises, I'm going to learn how to put sprinkles on my donut. <laughs> <laughs> Again, super basic stuff, but I'm finding it isn't that I... So, as an artist, it's very easy for us to get in the habit of only wanting to create to share with everyone else. It is very difficult as artists to ever create something just for the sake of creating it and not releasing it to the world. Creating a donut and a coffee cup in a 3D program is not something you're really gonna share. But I have to admit, it has been insanely gratifying and rewarding to kind of learn and explore and figure this out. Um, it's also even more rewarding that it's 100% free. So Blender, I think it's like blender.org, 100% free application um, that's actually on par with all the big giants like Maya and all those other huge, expensive 3D animation programs. Just, they're open source. So it's made by animators. It's for animators. I've been enjoying it. The tutorial series I've been going to is Blender Guru on YouTube, which is entirely free which I also love because he treats me like I'm a little kid, which is great because I don't know anything about 3D animation. 
in the long run, the hope is as I'm kind of exploring this and doing this, I'll slowly try to figure out how to visualize some of the segments in the songs using the techniques I'm learning now. I think the important takeaway is that I'm not expecting that at the end of this tutorial series, I'm gonna immediately know what I'm doing, but more that I've got a foundation it's an incredibly fun hobby that I've been enjoying doing. And then I can kind of build from it from there and kind of figure it out. And I just kind of realized it was like, oh yeah, that's right. Sometimes it's important to have a hobby, to have something outside of the music you're working on that you're not necessarily going to share. Maybe like for me, there is a main goal. It would be nice to be able to create some type of interesting visual Thing, music videos for these segments, but it's so far down the road that I, I'm not really sure if it's going to work out. If you heard that, that was my dog's ears in the background. Um, <laughs> usually the cue, he's like, shut up. So I just want to throw out there, I think everyone should have a hobby. I think everyone should have something outside of music that they do. Um, for me, it's, it's once a day for like 30 minutes, 30 minutes in the morning and then I'm done. I, d I do the little tutorial. Um, the tutorials are about 25, 20 minutes long. Go through a tweak, figure it out, and then I'm done. Um, <clears throat> the two components are don't do it for more than an hour because then it becomes a chore and make sure you're doing it every day uh, just so you can kind of keep up and you kind of, you know, that's how hobbies work, I guess. I don't know. So that's, that's all I wanted to throw in about that. I'm working on 3D animation, and I made a coffee cup and a donut, and tomorrow or the day after, I will have sprinkles on that donut. Sprinkles, and it's a pink donut. Well, pink frosting. All right. <laughs> so this is the conclusion. This is, this is it, kids. Let me adjust that. Um, <clears throat> I went back. I re-listened through the entire episode. I think I covered all my points. Um, I will add this in the time since I've recorded the SoundCloud section. <laughs> um, <clears throat> SoundCloud has been saved. They got a new round of funding. And more importantly, they're kicking out the former CEO, that fucking pompous gas bag, Alex Long. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Scandinavian or something. But So CEO's out. New people in, got funding, so I guess I don't have to jump ship on SoundCloud just yet. Um, but again, you can find me on social media at T-C-C-R-O-S-S-E-R. -S -S -E um, and you can find me almost anywhere. Uh, Instagram, SoundCloud, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Yeah, I think th those are all that. Um, I don't know when the next episode will be, just letting you know in advance. Don't know, don't care, uh, but I love you all, and have a lovely rest of your day, slash weekend, slash week, or whatevs. Whatevs! All right, crispy, crisp, I, I don't know, I don't have a tagline yet. Pickle Rick!